this idea that you have one career in one industry for your entire career is going away and it's being replaced by a model where you can have multiple careers over the course of your professional life. The gig economy, the way that I talk about it, is much broader and includes people who are consultants, people who are advisors, freelance writers, on-demand workers, freelancers. It really crosses all income levels, education levels, all industries and sectors. Welcome to Cross Pollination. We're a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB Financial. Think the gig economy is only about rideshare driving, walking dogs, or delivering takeout? Or that it has to mean precarious employment and no benefits? Diane Mulcahy joins the show this week to tell us what else it can be, how else it can look, and how to transition to a portfolio career. Diane Mulcahy is author of the book, The Gig Economy. She teaches MBA students on that topic at Babson College in Boston in a course that was named by Forbes magazine one of the top 10 most innovative business classes. Among other things, she's a venture capital and private equity advisor and book author and consultant, as well as a business magazine writer and speaker. She might even be an undercover multi-potentialite, someone with many talents and interests the opposite of a specialist. In this episode, she talks about building new kinds of careers, the mindset shifts that takes, and other ingredients that go with it, from finances to life plans, networking, side gigs, and career experiments. It's a growing trend, especially in the times we're in now. Diane starts by telling us the story of her own career and how she came to write her book. You know, when I became interested in this this topic of the gig economy, which really came about when I was reading an article one day, and um, that's when I first read the phrase, the gig economy. And I had one of those moments where I had little goosebumps on my arm, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is the thing that I have been thinking about all this time, about what work could look like. The phrase just seemed to encapsulate everything I had been thinking about. And within a week after reading that article, I had drafted a syllabus together to create and teach um, a course at Babson College, which is here in Boston, where I live, in the MBA program. And I was able to put that together as an experimental course. The first time I offered it, I had to cancel it because not enough people enrolled. Nobody had heard about the gig economy. Nobody knew what it was. And I didn't, I wasn't able to attract enough students. Um, the next year I tried again and I was able to get enough enrollment. I started teaching the class and the book really grew out of the class. I've been teaching the class now for six years and it has iterated over time. It's become more personal. I've developed the exercises and the homework assignments that I have my students do And as a result, I was able to take all of that iteration and learning and put it together in the book. And the book really focuses on, you know, as an individual, as an employee, what should you do if you are thinking about making the transition to working independently? Doesn't mean you have to make the transition immediately, but if you're thinking, I'd like to work that way at some point in my career, this is the book for you because I take all of the homework assignments and the exercises that I have my students do and I put them into the book. So it's a practical book. It's one that you can really 
work your way through and then come away with a concrete plan about how to make the transition. Now, I also talk about, you know, what does this mean for companies? What does this mean for the economy? What are the policy issues? I cover other topics, but the fundamental focus of the book is, you know, helping individuals make the transition from being an employee to creating a different way of working for themselves. So where do we start? A lot of us go to school and study in programs geared toward working in large organizations. So if you're someone who thinks this portfolio thing sounds a lot closer to your style of work, how do you get started? If you're relatively early on in your career and you haven't yet built up a ton of experience or skills to leverage, where do you start? Well, first of all, I completely agree with you. Universities at the undergraduate level and even MBA programs do not do a good job preparing students to work in this new way of working. By and large, they prepare students, as you said, to work in corporations as full-time employees. In my view, they're doing a disservice to their students because the reality of the work world is that increasingly people are working independently. Companies are hiring independent workers. The workforce is becoming more distributed And you are better positioned in the workplace if you have the ability and the skills and the mindset to be able to work uh, independently and remotely. So absolutely agree with that. Um, I think in terms of what can somebody who's young in their career do to prepare, the best advice I have is um, to get a side gig. And I will acknowledge that for somebody coming out of college or even out of an MBA program, if they're relatively young in their career, it can be beneficial to work traditionally in a full-time job as a full-time employee because it's it's a great way to get a variety of experiences. It makes sense to have the affiliation with a company that people have heard of and know. It's a great kind of signal in the market to be affiliated with a brand that other people know and understand what that means. Um, And it's a great way to be able to take advantage of the organizational resources to learn, to get training, and to develop skills. So I'm not in any way saying that working full-time is a bad idea. It, It works really well for people at different points in their career, and it works really well for different kinds of people. So I, I, you know, I, I want to make, be clear about that. Um, but for somebody who is working full-time and as a full-time employee early in their career and has aspirations to be independent, I think getting a side gig is the way to go. Um, having a side gig allows you to develop skills that you might not be able to develop in your full-time job. It allows you to expand your network. It allows you to experiment in a low-cost and low-risk way with uh, offering services, with starting your own business, with going out and getting clients, with understanding what people will pay for the services or products that you're interested in offering. It's just a great way to get out there and do it while still in the safety of a, of a full-time, the relative safety of a full-time job. So I recommend a side gig. Yeah, I mean, side gigs um, come in all different forms, uh, shapes and sizes, as you can imagine, because people have so many different interests. Um, you know, people can end up doing 
a side gig that relates to their full-time job, but just looks a little bit different. So they're able to leverage the skills and experience that they're, that they've developed in the full-time workplace into a side gig. So for example, if you're working for a large accounting firm, maybe you take those accounting skills, but you work for different clients, you work for startups or you work for small businesses. So it's not directly competitive, but you're leveraging the skills and experiences you already have into a different client base. Sometimes side gigs look completely different from what somebody does as part of their day job. So taking the same accounting firm example, you know, I could work at an accounting firm during the day, but my side gig is I'm a freelance writer or I'm a graphic designer or I'm a gardener, you know, I'm a landscape designer. So the side gig can be something that is completely different. It really comes from a place of, you know, what is something that you enjoy? What's another skill that you have, but you're not convinced you can make a full living at? It might be a hobby at the moment that you're just experimenting with to see how you feel about it once you start making a living from it. Um, so side gigs can be all kinds of things that have nothing to do with your your regular job. It can also be um, starting a business and experimenting with that. So going back again to the accounting firm example, you know, maybe I've been a full-time employee for 10 years, but I have uh, a vision and a dream to hang up my own shingle and start my own business and work for myself. So by, by starting that as a side gig, I can experiment with getting clients um, getting some early traction in the marketplace. I can start out with maybe prices that are lower than what I would need them to be if I were working full time for myself. And I can work my way up to having enough traction to then leave my full time job and, and make the leap. Um, so those are a couple of different ways that side gigs can be used to either earn other income acquire different skills, expand your network, or experiment with starting your own business. Okay, so side gigs can help give us a way to test things, find out what other work is like, what works, and what doesn't. What about networks? Don't we need networking to help make career transitions? And does random networking hold as much anticipation as spending an afternoon with a dead fish? It's evolving, too, as some of our connections and work relationships move from in-person to online. Diane talks about networking in her book and the opportunities that now exist to do it creatively, to draw in potential colleagues and collaborators in different ways, and even combine it with things like a side gig in ways that can give us a lot more benefits and useful information, skills, and experience than just finding out when opportunities come up. I feel like when we talk about networking, people immediately have this image of, you know, being at one of those huge conferences where they don't know anybody and they have a glass of bad wine and, you know, they're supposed to <laughs> go up and talk to people randomly for the next hour. That's sort of the worst case scenario of what networking looks like. What I cover in my book is really a different idea of networking that is all about bringing people to you. For, for many people, it's painful to do the, the kind of networking that I just described I think a, a, an interesting alternative is to uh, look at inbound connecting, which is this idea of pulling people towards you. And there are a number of different ways to do that that I talk about. One is by creating content. So at that same conference, instead of being an attendee, you could be a speaker, somebody who is on a panel 
or actively participating in the discussions that are going on, that gives you a platform to get out your ideas and gives people a reason to come approach you. If speaking isn't your thing, you know, there's ways to produce content in the written form. You can post on Medium, uh, publish articles there. You can maybe publish articles in one of your industry publications or become active on LinkedIn or Twitter or other social media platforms. Again, that's a way to put out your ideas and perspectives and attract like-minded people to you. If you're a social person, curating events is a great way to network. And that could be as simple as reaching out to somebody either in your organization or, or a colleague that you've met but haven't really gotten to know and saying, hey, do you have time for a 30-minute call? Do you have time to grab lunch? Do you have time for a coffee? It can be a one-on-one -on -one meeting just to deepen your connection with that person and get to know them. Or it could be actually curating and hosting events. You could say, hey, I want to do a once-a-month lunch, um, you know, where we all talk about this topic or where I bring together a whole team and we all get to know each other. It can be any format that you choose, but the idea is that you're the leader, you're curating it, and so everybody gets to know you. So those are just a couple of examples of ways that you can network creatively um, in ways that are more intentional and focused on what you're, the people that you're trying to know versus showing up at random events and hoping you meet somebody interested. These are all skills, um, and you get better at them with practice. I mean, you get better at going to conferences and going up and introducing to people if that's something you do all the time. But it, you, you can also get better and more practiced at networking by reaching out to people or producing written content or speaking. Those are all skills, and with practice, we can all become better at them. The best example that I can give you is one that I included in my book, which I, I love this example. It was somebody that I interviewed who, after college, had gone to work for an advertising firm, you know, started a very traditional career path, but decided that she had always been interested in interior design. The issue was she had no contacts in that field, it had nobody that she could approach to say, you know, how do I enter this? You know, could you even be a mentor or, or help me make this transition? So what she ended up doing was she took on a side gig and the side gig was an entry level sales job at a high end furniture store. So she would work the weekends, that's it, just two shifts on the weekends, on Saturday and Sunday. And what that allowed her to do was put herself in this ecosystem of interior designers. She was able to meet interior designers that came in to shop for their clients, and she was able to meet potential clients. And the other people who worked at the store often had an interest in interior design and connections in that world. So she did that for about a year and launched her business from that. Her first client came from working at the store. It was a customer who had come in. So she started as a side gig working on small projects for clients that she met that way. And she was able to launch her business because she got advice on pricing. She 
from conversations that she would have, casual conversations with designers and her coworkers, she was able to get a sense of how do people scope work? What do you usually charge for different kinds of projects? What kinds of business development do you do? Where do you market yourself? Where do you find you get your clients? Um, what kind of clients are good ones? What ones do you watch out for? All those kind of informal um, qualitative pieces of information that can really help you when you're starting out. So she started her business that way as a side gig, grew it over time, you know, started out kind of underpricing herself in the market because she really didn't have the experience and just grew her way to a portfolio that allowed her first to quit her job and then secondly to make a really good living. When I interviewed her, she was relatively new to the market. She had been out maybe three years and I contacted her about a year ago and she had tripled her rates. Um, wow. <laughs> so she has really been able to grow her business. It's, you know, a very successful business. She's super happy doing what she loves. And her, um, you know, her success really comes from getting a side gig and making the transition to an area that she knew nothing about, had no contacts and had no experience. So I love that story because it just shows how possible that is. In, in a very, very practical way. Yes. And, and a not very glamorous way. I mean, you know, working on the sales floor of a furniture store is not the most glamorous start, but it was effective and it worked. <laughs> is that kind of a hard thing for people to get their, their minds around as well sometimes? Because Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's, all, it's always hard to... It's always hard to take a step back, to do something at the entry level, to do something that is at a lower pay grade than what we might be used to doing. Um, and that's, that's why having an exit strategy, being intentional about what you want to do in the future, and being willing to get a side gig, not having to do that full time, I think is really important for morale and and for feeling like you're making progress towards an ultimate goal, not taking a step back. Since this podcast is about a book, I wanted to tell you about Book Women. Book Women is a podcast about editing, publishing, and writing Indigenous stories. Hosts Tanya Ball, Sheila LaRock, and Kayla Larson are three Métis librarians representing nations from across the homeland. Now they've banded together to chat books, culture, and anything else that comes up. Bookwomen was recently added to Indian and Cowboy Media Platform's podcast incubator program for emerging voices that contribute positively to the Indigenous podcasting space. You can listen and find out more at bookwomenpodcast.ca. One of the other topics that's come up often on this show is work that's engaging and how to work in an engaging way. Dan has thoughts on that too for independent workers, and it's especially relevant at the moment when many of us are working from home and might be for some time. Yeah, I think... Um I think for many independent workers, not having to go to an office is one of the big attractions of not being a full-time employee. So the idea that you no longer have to commute, that you no longer have to observe this arbitrary nine to five schedule five days a week. And I, I say arbitrary deliberately because I have I can tell you that there is not one study and I know this because I've looked, uh, that says that working traditionally in an office for eight hours a day, five days a week, 
maximizes anything that any company or any employee cares about. It doesn't maximize productivity. It doesn't maximize engagement. Um, it doesn't maximize collaboration, happiness, nothing. So for both companies and for workers, there's a huge opportunity to gain from allowing people to work remotely or in a, in a distributed way. For, for employees or for workers who are making the transition from being an employee to working independently, um, you know, I think ideally it doesn't look like the situation we're in now where people are thrown into having to work from home, having to work from home full time and not being able to seek out a third space, like a co-working space. That's probably the most uh, stressful way to transition to remote work. <laughs> yeah. But I think what's, what's great about, uh, you know, if we can look for the silver lining in this situation is that it is forcing companies in particular to experiment with this and to it's, it's forcing them to try it, to develop processes around it and to start to change their mindset. Because if people are going to be home for two or three or four, however long this lasts, companies will be able to see the results of this experiment. They will be able to see what happened to our corporate results, what happened to teams, what kind of feedback am I getting from managers, from senior executives, from employees, what worked, what didn't. And I think there's no going back from this experiment. I think it will be very difficult for companies to hold the line on everybody must come to an office every day. That's the way we're doing things. Because I think for most companies and most situations, there will be some success in this way of working because that's what the data suggests. The data is so clear about that. And workers really want this flexibility. They're happier when they get to work remotely, at least some of the time. They're healthier. They're more focused. They're more loyal to companies that allow them to do that. So I think we're not going to go back from this. That's my call. That's something we've been hearing a lot. Are a lot more of us likely to find ourselves suddenly in the position of joining the gig economy as a result of the COVID pandemic? What happens when we haven't had the time or opportunity to plan out a structured, organized transition? I think that's true. And, and we saw that happen in the financial crisis in 2008, when the gig economy was much less developed, was was um, a more nascent trend for sure. And I should have said this at the beginning, but just to be clear, when I am talking about the gig economy, I'm I'm not just talking about Uber drivers. The gig economy, the way that I talk about it is, um, is much broader and includes people who are consultants, people who are advisors, freelance writers, on-demand workers, um, freelancers. It's it really crosses all income levels, education levels, all industries and sectors. So for people who are being thrust into this situation, I think what's better now than in 2008 is that the gig economy and this way of working independently and remotely is much more accepted. It's much more common and it's much easier to find opportunities 
There are numerous platforms, whether it's, you know, Uber and Instacart, or whether it's Catalent for MBA consultants, or Axiom for lawyers, or TopTel for software developers, or Upwork um, for, for lots of different skills. There are, there are many, many more ways and a, a broader variety of ways to create a portfolio um, for somebody who's transitioning to independent work. So the, I think the timing now is makes it much easier and more efficient to be able to respond to this kind of economy than than in the past. I mean, what's what, what's also interesting is that the gig economy can serve as a cushion. So somebody who is laid off from their job or who maybe worked in a restaurant, which is now closed, they can transition more easily to other types of work. You know, there are more opportunities out there. Another hot career topic is education, and specifically continuous education, learning new skills and new materials regularly. If there were ever times when you could go to school, get a job, get experience and training and learning through that job, and be confident you were all good, those times are over. For careers in a world where things change continuously and quickly, education is ongoing and self-directed more than ever. Absolutely. There are so many educational options now for people, whether you're in college, in high school, in graduate school, or out in the workforce. And we are really seeing that right now, I think at an unprecedented scale. So what I mean by that is, for example, conferences, if you're a corporate employee, and you went to industry conferences to learn about the latest issues that are going on, the latest developments in your industry or sector, those are now, by and large, all going online. They're all available from where you are on your computer. That makes it much, it sort of distributes access much more widely. What we're also seeing is opportunities like edX, Coursera, LinkedIn Learning, where you can go online and take classes, get certifications, get digital badges for either no cost or very low cost at your own pace when and where you choose to learn. And again, incredibly democratizing and makes it so much easier for people to become lifelong learners and to transition into other areas that they might find themselves interested in or curious about throughout their careers. This idea that you have one career in one industry for your entire career is going away and it's being replaced by a model where you can have multiple careers over the course of your professional life. So maybe you were in an accounting firm early in your career, and then you develop an interest in marketing and you transition by working on a side gig, by volunteering uh, at a nonprofit on a marketing committee, by taking classes online in marketing, by networking in that field, then you transition into that. And then when you find something else that is interesting, you maybe make a third transition. So all of these tools that are emerging make it much easier to pivot, to learn, to acquire new knowledge and new skills. 
it's 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 really an incredible shift in a very short time. On the subject of lifelong education, this episode of Cross Pollination is brought to you by Back to School Again, a podcast about midlife learners. The next season, presented in partnership with Athabasca University, highlights the power of online learning. Host Katrina Ingram interviews guests about how the internet has transformed education, the role of microlearning and micro-credentialing, and a new course offering called PowerEd. She will also share what she's learned in a Power Ed course on the business applications of machine learning. Find Back to School Again on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can find it at backtoschoolagain.ca, backtoschoolagain.ca. So you can change your skills. What about your professional identity? If you've been in a certain career for a long time, is it like asking an old leopard to change its spots? In the oil and gas reinvention shows, three people told us about switching to completely different careers, from engineer to teacher, oil sands electrician to solar energy, corporate office to mountain guiding. Turns out, shifting professional identities is part of the mindset change related to career transitions. I love that you brought up that topic because it is an incredibly important issue, but it really it's it's something that we don't seem to it doesn't get a lot of airtime i feel <laughs> and it but it is important because it is true that people identify with the work that they do especially if they've done it for a long time and moving on from that that identity can be one of the more difficult parts of making a transition especially if the transition isn't your choice if you're mm-hmm. if you're looking for a different way of working because you are laid off, for example. Um, It can be a real, it can take a while and it can be challenging and difficult. So the way that I approach that, and I, I, I talk about this in my book, is to try to get yourself into that mindset early so that it is not such a difficult transition to make. And the way that I suggest doing that is to always have an exit strategy. And what I mean by an exit strategy is a plan for leaving whatever the current situation that you're in is. So if you are in a full-time job as an employee, imagine that your boss came into your office on Monday and said, you know, unfortunately, in six months, we're going to lay you off. Hmm. What would you do? What are the actions that you would take? What are the professional actions? You know, it could be networking, could be learning, could be training, uh, could be trying to acquire, you know, some skills, reaching out to clients, doing some networking. What are the personal things that you would do? That might be, um, you know, shaving some expenses. It might be taking a look at your finances more closely. It might be making, you know, contemplating a move to a different city that you've always wanted to go to. Um, but the idea is to think about it right now, not to wait until the situation is thrust upon you. And I have, you know, I have this exercise in my book and my recommendation for everybody is to do that as soon as you accept a new position is to say, is to have an idea, you know, what do I want to get out of this position? How does it position me for my next step? And then what do I want my next step to be? The the best analogy I can offer is buying a stock. Um, You know, if you're going to buy Amazon stock, the, the idea is that you're buying it 
with an expectation that you will then sell it at a different price, at a higher price. And you have an idea in your head about what that price is. That's your exit strategy. It's the same idea. When you take a position or take on a client or take on a project, think carefully. What is it that I want to get out of this? Is it income? Is it a skill? Is it access to a network? Is it a particular experience that I can then put on my resume that I need? And then how does that position you for your next um, situation, whatever that might be, whether it's a job or another bidding on another project or accessing a client? So all it's like always have a side gig, always have an exit strategy. Designing our own skills and educational lives also implies thinking better careers and designing them strategically in a way that's a lot different than in previous times. How do we do that if we might be changing our work or doing multiple things at once as in a portfolio career? Diane talks about what that can look like. Well, it does. And, and the gig economy requires that. I, I think this idea that you can approach your career with a more of a passive employee mindset where you basically outsource your professional development, your career progression, and frankly, your financial stability to a company. I think that's an incredibly risky strategy to pursue in this economy. Um, and I think what, what working independently does and thinking about working independently does is it forces you to relinquish that mindset and to develop one that is much more proactive, that is much more, that gives you much more agency over your professional life. And it does force you to think about, okay, what am I getting out of this position? How am I positioning myself for what's next? And it encourages you to think about what are my skills? What, what, what experience am I gathering? What expertise am I building? And is that in tune with what the market is demanding? And how can I, you know, make sure that I am in a strong position when I leave whatever the situation is that I'm in now? It is a very different way of thinking. And I want to make sure to acknowledge and emphasize that because that is one of the hardest shifts that employees have to make when they transition to independent work is giving up that more passive outsourced kind of mindset and adopting a much more proactive and active and strategic mindset. That is a shift that has to happen. It is a mindset shift and it can be challenging to make. Something we've talked about a lot on this show in connection with innovation is experiments. Here and in her book, Diane talks about the role of experiments in finding out what a gig economy portfolio career can look like. Yeah, I think it I think it just removes the pressure, like thinking about viewing it or going into it as an experiment and saying, you know, I'm open to one, seeing if this will work, two, learning from it, and three, changing some things if it's not working. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Like I'm going to try it. And if it doesn't work, that's it. It failed. It really, I think, opens up the mindset to, to be able to say, I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to iterate and I'm going to pivot. And I'm going to, you know, just go in and see if I can make it work. It just opens up a lot more possibility. So the experimental mindset is really valuable when you're making, I think, any kind of transition, honestly. 
Shifting to independent work involves a lot of different considerations, including financial planning and managing finances, both before its transition, if possible, and while in that career, where it might look more like an entrepreneur's situation, someone who knows that there isn't a steady paycheck every few weeks from a company. Finances are a topic Diane talks a lot about in her book, especially how salary and benefits can look if they're not provided through a company anymore, as well as retirement planning, and thinking differently about finances while in gig economy work. It's also a topic companies and governments in different countries could be looking at in terms of how current policies related to taxes, benefits, and labor conditions might need to change and be updated when it comes to how they fit for independent workers versus traditional employees and for the companies they work with. Typically, those kinds of changes really lag what's actually happening in the real world. It's a huge issue. Um, What it typically looks like is complete fear. People are terrified of quitting their job, losing their job, and losing that steady paycheck. Um, There's something about having a steady paycheck that that makes people feel really secure, even though they could be laid off at any time. So so even though there is no job security, people feel secure. And the idea of, of leaving that is terrifying. So that's what it normally looks like. Ideally, what it would look like is, uh, and, and this, these are processes that I, that I go through in the book. I have three chapters that are, that are devoted to personal financial planning in the book. Um, but ideally, what it looks like is stepping back and thinking about, you know, what does success look like for me? What really matters to me? What are, what are the values and the priorities that are most important for me to live in my life. And maybe for somebody, it's really important for them to, you know, have a big house in a, in a uh, kind of swanky neighborhood. And that is really important to them. And that, that makes them feel like they've made it, you know, that that's what success looks like to them. Maybe for somebody else, it's really important for them to, to feel like they have like the corner office or the title or the, or the income, uh, And that's what success looks like to them. So it's really, for other people, it means having certain kinds of impact, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no judgment. It's just getting super clear on what success looks like. And the reason that that's so important, and by the way, much harder than it sounds, (laughs) is, um, is because we end up, well, we work in order to buy a certain lifestyle. And what I see time and time again in my class and with with, uh, people that I coach is that they realize they are buying a lifestyle that they don't actually want and that doesn't give them a feeling that they have made it, that they're successful, that they're, they're living their values and their priorities. So oftentimes this conversation about leaving full-time employment and going out on your own actually ends up being a kind of fundamental conversation about what is it that you want to do in your life and what kind of lifestyle do you want to buy? And that's so important to get clarity on because the lifestyle that you want to buy and live might look very different from the one that you are currently living and buying. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes what I've found is that it's actually lower cost So if you get super clear on the things that matter to you and you understand what they cost, then you understand what you have to earn. Then you understand a lot 
about what your working life needs to look like. I mean, I, I had a student uh, who, who took my class come up to me afterwards and say, you know, all of my friends are graduating, getting a corporate job and moving to the suburbs. And he was like, I don't want to do any of those things. Well, I want to graduate, but <laughs> you know, I, I want to do, I want to have a different kind of working life. And I, I want to live in the city. There's so many more resources. I don't have to own a car. You know, I can, I can access things so much more easily. And I, I really don't want to buy a house in the suburbs, but it was, it was even after taking the course and going through all these exercises, it was still hard for him to resist that default path. So I completely understand how that can happen, but these stepping back and doing that reflective work and thinking carefully about what you want your life to look like really pays off in terms of avoiding ending up in a financial trap where you're really, you're on the hamster wheel of getting the paychecks to make the payments for the life that you don't even care about. I have, I mean, I'm so impressed. I have seen my students do it time and time again. They come in, a lot of these MBA students are, you know, they're in their 30s, they're married, some of them have families, they have mortgages, they've already bought a house, they've picked a town. And I have seen them, after doing this kind of work, really start over. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. And it's not super easy, uh, maybe not even pleasant, but they end up in places that they're so much happier being. So it's really inspiring, I have found. Yeah, the retirement question is an interesting one because certainly when I talk to Gen Xers and millennials, the idea of a traditional retirement, the idea that you work for 40 years, then stop working and you know, go golfing or sit on a beach somewhere is not what's appealing uh, to people. And I, I wonder if in and of itself, the traditional idea of retirement uh, has seen its day. I think what, what I hear from people more often is an interest in continuing to work, but on a reduced schedule. People want to remain active and engaged. They want to continue to earn income but they don't necessarily want to work full time uh, in a job that requires them to um, give up control over their time and their schedule completely. So I think, you know, first the idea of retirement is changing and the expectation, the, the more common expectation going forward, I think, is continuing to work later in life, but not at full steam ahead. And the gig economy lends itself perfectly to that. You can continue to stay engaged to continue. You can, you can continue doing work that you've done at your day job. You can experiment with uh, other side gigs. You can really take it down a few notches and, you know, walk dogs, rent out a room on Airbnb. Uh, There's so many different options for, earning a little bit of extra money to supplement the money that you have been able to save. And by the way, retirement savings is a problem for everybody. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a big problem for full-time employees. Very few full-time employees anywhere on the income spectrum are saving sufficiently for retirement. Uh, if you're an independent worker in, U in the U.S., the laws are such that you can save more and faster for retirement if you work independently. Mm -hmm. But still, very few people are. So that is a 
persistent and enormous problem, uh, which we will be facing as Gen X starts to retire. But, um, but I think the gig economy, again, can step in and serve as a cushion because it allows people to continue working on a reduced schedule when and where they want and from home. Not aspiring to a very quiet retirement and a sandy beach, another mindset shift. Here are Diane's top three pieces of advice for careers in the modern world. She'll also tell us where you can find out more about her work, her newsletter, and the book, The Gig Economy, which is widely available through online booksellers, in paper copy, and in libraries, too. I think there are three takeaways. One is, do the reflective work about what success looks like for you and what really matters to you in terms of values and priorities that you want to live. Number two always have an exit strategy for whatever situation you're in for as many parts of your life as you can. And number three, always have a sidekick. And where we can find out more? Yes, my website is dianemulcahy.com. And you can sign up for I have a monthly newsletter that sort of curates news and articles about the gig economy. And I also include a question of the month, things like, um, that relate to the exit strategy or getting a side gig. They're meant to be questions that allow you to um, prepare for making the transition to independent work. If that's something that you're interested in or to, or to be more thoughtful and reflective about the work that you're currently doing. And um, I have, you know, podcasts and, and things like that that are up on the website as well. So, Lots of resources to check out and lots more to know, as well as other aspects of Diane's own portfolio work on her website. If you're interested in knowing more about these topics generally, the previous episode with Nyla Bari explored a lot of complementary ideas to this one, including more on networking, mentorship, career experiments, and what we can all do for our careers even while the pandemic is still ongoing. You can also check out the real-life stories of three people who've made big career transitions and how they did it in the two-part episodes just before that. I hope all our listeners are staying well. If you have any comments on the show or you'd like to connect with the podcast, you can reach Crosspollination at Polinato1 on Twitter, by email, or on the website as crosspollination.co. See you next time. <laughs>